Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is the fantastic, the fabulous Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you again. It's good to see you. Also returning to the roundup is the always highly anticipated Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, thanks for driving over from Sacramento. Yeah, it's always great to be with you in person, Ron. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. So overdue. On this week's roundup, an update on the January 6th committee and Trump's failed attempts to hide his records. It's finally infrastructure week after the bipartisan infrastructure bill was passed late last week. The highs and lows and confusions of the economic recovery and inflation. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we will talk about how climate activists are using Big Oil's playbook. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. The list of subpoenas issued by the January 6th committee continues to grow. This week, the committee sent subpoenas to General Michael Flynn and John Eastman, who is the author of the memo about how Mike Pence could overthrow the government and declare Trump the winner of the 2020 election. They've also added former White House senior advisor Stephen Miller, Keith Kellogg, who is the former national security advisor to VP Mike Pence, the former president's personnel chief, Johnny McEntee, who was an enforcer of Trumpian loyalty in the government, former press secretary Kayleigh McEnany, along with several of Trump's former assistants. In announcing the latest round of subpoenas, committee chair Benny Thompson said that the panel wants to learn, quote, every detail of what went on in the White House on January 6th and in the days beforehand, end quote. And they need to know the role that Trump and his aides played in the efforts to stop the counting of electoral college votes. Also this week, federal judge Tanya Chodkin allowed the House committee to have access to hundreds of pages of documents from the Trump White House leading up to and around the January 6th attack. Trump has been trying to keep those documents secret and has sought to block the National Archive from releasing those to Congress. Chodkin wrote that presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not president. Trump's team intends to appeal the decision, but the judge denied an attempt to keep the documents from being released until that appeal plays out. And the House is set to get the documents on Friday, but an appeals court could postpone the release. She did rule that the former president's wishes cannot overrule the decisions of the sitting president regardless regarding protecting privileged information. The documents include call logs, visitor records, and notes from top advisors related to claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen and Trump's reaction to the January 6th attack. So the January 6th committee has largely flown under the radar outside of the politically engaged. We've talked about this before, Mike. Mm -hmm. Um, You've described the news around this as a refrigerator hum, Mm -hmm. um, which maybe you could reprise for folks. But how should we be thinking about the inclusion of top former White House officials on the subpoena list. You know, I'm, in, I'm increasingly surprised um, by sort of the, the upset and the anxiety that I kind of see out there, especially on social media, about the pace at with which this is going. It's like there are people who are like, issue these subpoenas, 
forget the trial. <laughs> you know, let's throw these these people in prison. Uh, you know, where's Merrick Garland? What's going on? Right. The truth of the matter is, this is moving along pretty expeditiously, and they've already interviewed over 150. Uh, witnesses. Most of this stuff is happening behind uh, closed doors because they're trying to get to the bottom of this. This is what an investigation is. I think that there's this perception that this is a a public trial. It's not. Congress is doing its job as oversight to find out what was going on. And it seems that this is expanding at kind of an exponential rate. There's basically everybody around Donald Trump and that innermost circle is being called in. Now, whether or not they comply with the subpoenas, the subpoenas is going to be a, a, a different question. And I also completely understand people's concern about Republicans trying to run out the clock because I think that that is part of the strategy. If Republicans do take over a majority in the, in the House in the midterms, this whole thing could be scrapped. But the more evidence that they find, the more that this is turned over to the Department of Justice, the more time there is to have this whole thing play out. So this is there's any way you look at this, this is not good news. For, for Donald Trump, it's not good for the Trump administration. It's, it is uh, in the mind of the public who is worried about things like inflation that is looking at some of, uh, you know, uh, uh, some, of some of the domestic and, frankly, international issues that are, are kind of uh, hampering the Biden administration at this moment. Uh, this is background noise, but it is that refrigerator hum. And what I meant by that is it's this steady background noise that is there that is going to um, reveal some things that will pierce through in the minds of voters. There's a lot of questions out there, very legitimate, as to whether or not people are, are, are um, have put the January 6th insurrection into the rearview mirror and are more concerned about other day-to-day pressing issues politically and whether or not this will help the Democrats or the Republicans in the midterms. I don't care. This is about justice and serving justice on something that was profoundly impactful in the history of United the United States and needs to be prosecuted. Whether or not they're able to make political hay out of it is, in my estimation, a secondary consideration. We've got to get to the bottom of this. We've got to root this out. We've got to find out how deep it ran. I think the community is doing its job, and we're just going to have to let the politics take care of themselves. So, Lucy, a couple of weeks ago, Adam Kinzinger declared that he's not running for re-election. Um, but last week, he told the Chicago Sun-Times that he hasn't ruled out a 2024 presidential run. Uh, Liz Cheney spoke at a First Amendment event in New Hampshire and said that Trump is at war, quote, with the rule of law and the Constitution. Um so <laughs> if the only two Republicans on the committee start running for president, how is that going to shape how suburban voters, you know, view the work that the committee is doing? Well, yeah, that that those comments from Kinzinger were interesting. He got, I think, cornered by Lynn Sweet, who is a really well-known longtime ace columnist at the Sun-Times. And so look, in Adam Kinzinger's defense, it is possible that he was a little bit taken by surprise and and being asked, are you going to run for president is different and, and answering that way is different than declaring it, right? Than than going and saying, hey Lynn, I wanna, I wanna get something out to your readers. As for Liz Cheney, she is in New Hampshire. That's a pretty unmistakable move. But I think that with both of those of those members, I mean, even put aside their work on the January 6th commission, which Republican party is it that they think they may be occupying next year or the year after or the year after that? I think you can get your answer to whether or not their mission is futile by looking at, for instance, Liz Cheney's embrace of Glenn Youngkin 
the now Republican governor-elect from Virginia, Liz Cheney's basically, her attitude has been, this is a great sign. We need to push forward and and move on and, and you know, rally around Glenn Youngkin. So happy about this. But as Liz Cheney embraces Glenn Youngkin, Glenn Youngkin is not embracing Liz Cheney, <laughs> right? Glenn Youngkin gets, there's a lot about Glenn Youngkin distancing himself from Trump, but he is also distancing himself from any kind of shade of would-be never-Trump Republican, not to mention the fact that both Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger did vote for Trump in November. Mm-hmm. So in, in in essence, I think that that what we're seeing is really just a, a continuing devolution of any potential for integrity within the Republican Party and these these kind of uh, signs that someone like Liz Cheney may be asking us to to take as as positive signs of the road ahead for the Republican Party are not to be. Look, some of this should just be chalked up to what politicians do. When someone like Adam Kinzinger, and I have a lot of respect for him, but this is a pretty familiar playbook, redistricting is happening in Illinois. His district got combined with another Republican's district. He did not have a way to get reelected. He has grander ambitions, not necessarily to be president, but I don't know, maybe to be on the payroll of a think tank or to be a cable news contributor. But saying things to a reporter like Lynn Sweet, like, yeah, I'm not ruling it out. That's just part of how you keep how you keep the attention on you. And we just can't, we can't, we can't trust politicians. <laughs> we can't trust politicians, even, even if we like a lot of what they say. Um, right. You know, last week, uh, I want to go back to the, the committee. Last week, our friend Tim Miller was speaking about the election results in Virginia and noted that most voters aren't thinking about January 6th every day like we are, like most of our listeners are, but most Americans aren't. Uh, let's take a listen to, to that clip. Sure. Look, I, I think that, that sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect from people who are really engaged in politics day in, day out. I think there are a lot of people who watch this show and follow us all on Twitter who who are rightfully outraged and horrified by January 6th, who, who look at the, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boebert's of the world and, and are just disgusted that the Republicans are en- enabling them, uh, who, who look at the, you know, footsie they're playing with white nationalists and the apologia for domestic terrorists and, and, and just can't possibly stomach voting for a Republican because of that. I, I feel that way. Right. And so I understand that, that there are folks that are watching that, that feel that way and just don't get how why other people aren't as mad as them and why other people could vote for somebody like Glenn Youngkin that is enabling this kind of stuff. But, but I think the answer to Charlie's question is that, that, that people need to keep in mind that the job of politicians is different from that of activists and, and news shows and commentators. Like politicians need to talk to all the voters. And there's a huge swamp of people in Virginia that, that rightly or wrongly just don't care that much about January 6th. They didn't like it. They were mad about it for two days. But right now, the thing that they're mad about is that their gas prices and grocery prices are going up. That, as Biden just talked about, their child their child care prices are through the roof. Or maybe they have to watch their kids because schools were closed for so long in Virginia. People were frustrated by a lot of everyday things. And they looked at their state in Virginia. It was all Democrats running it. They look at Washington. It was all Democrats running it. And what they're hearing is all this talk about Trump and how crazy the Republicans are and all this infighting over how many trillions we're going to spend. And they weren't hearing, how are you going to solve my problems right now? 
So I don't want to relitigate the Virginia elections. We we talked uh, about those at length, you know, last week with Lena Erickson, and I don't want to try and sort of look for more lessons to be learned there because I think we've done that. But I thought Tim's take was one of the most sort of on the nose bits of commentary um, that I saw, you know, uh, in all of the noise that was you know happening in, in the wake of that election. Um, but because he's right about, you know, Mike, you described it as a refrigerator hum, but really what's on the minds of voters is not, uh, is not this January 6th committee, but Democrats need to make that. So, right. So what are Democrats and the committee going to actually reach the American people with, um, what the committee is learning? Well, first, let me say, I mean, I, I think that was a great take from from Tim. And as usual, Tim is kind of spot on in, in looking at this and kind of explaining how inside baseball can kind of consume so many of us who kind of watch this stuff day in and day out and the disconnect between the average person. And I think the, the election results uh, speak for themselves. Tim was, Tim was right. Um, having said that, like I said, sometimes you have to prosecute justice. You have to do what is right regardless uh, and then let the chips fall where they may. I, I happen to believe that this is going to be a significant development um, that will help shape the midterms. Does that mean that I believe that this is going to be an issue that Democrats can run on? I don't believe that. I certainly don't believe that. But I do believe that it will help set frame the narrative in part of the questions through which we're looking at other policy issues. Um, and and you, you see this, we have seen this over the course of the past 20 years. Again, those of us that have been involved, whatever party happens to be dealing with a scandal at any given time usually suffers greatly uh, at the polls, whether it was the House, ba- House Bank checking scandal. For, for, <laughs> for, for those of you my age, I remember this in 19. 19- 92 or, you know, salacious, you know, sex scandals that have happened with members of Congress that kind of help put a fulcrum and a focus point on what the party in power is or is not dealing with. These can become very significant issues. Um, Look, and let me, let me, let me say this very candidly as a political professional, I think that the 2022 midterms are going to be uh, probably a, a pretty big pickup for Republican uh, candidates. It's going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be a bloodbath. sizing up to be a bloodbath. There's still a long way to go. Dynamics can absolutely change and they will, mm-hmm. but just the historical trend line, the data points speak to a very significant uh, Republican year. Um, can can this issue, can the January 6th issue uh, be a bulwark against that? Yes, it absolutely can, but I think it's not a primary argument. It's not what voters are going to be voting on as their primary concern. They're not going to be storming to the polling places and saying, to hell with those Republicans, they're going to pay for this insurrectionist movement. It can absolutely shade and color all of the other policy issues through which they're looking at by saying, hmm, do I really want the Republican Party back in power, especially if Donald Trump is is rearing his ugly head again and looking like he's going to be making a return? Is this really something that I want the country to, to be barreling down uh, towards? And and I think that if, if the Democrats are smart about it and astute about it, um, a lot of these, these really damning details that are inevitably going to come out will be bled out. The refrigerator hum will get consistently louder over a period of time. And that provides the opening through which they can convey their overall di- direction of where they want America to head. That's politically how you play this out. Okay. I think, I think all of that is right. Lucy, 
uh, uh, let's play a thought experiment here for a second. What sort of damning details would have to be released? What would we have to learn in order for this to gain the prominence that it needs to in, in most Americans' minds? Well, I think that we should make a distinction between um, which damning details, sort of who's the audience, right? So I think we should set the table by saying that hardcore Trump voters are nothing is going to pull them off of that. The kind of core MAGA base cult is not going to be impacted by any details. Yeah. The people who could be are people like the Biden Youngkin voters mm. who voted for Biden in 2020 and then voted for Glenn Youngkin last week. And I think that the kinds of details that we could see more of are the details like the details emerging about what Mike Pence was was doing during the insurrection, which was badgeless, unable to access his office, unable to access secure locations. It was bizarre. And basically just <laughs> out in the wind. I mean, it's insane. And the conversation between, say, former Vice President Dan Quayle and Mike Pence, those are very damning details. I think that if we learn details of um, a more sophisticated coup plan mm -hmm. from Trump folks, if, of what exactly were they planning at the Willard Hotel, and, and not stuff from kind of fringy people like Roger Stone or Rudy Giuliani, like what were his core advisors doing and what was he saying? And then the other thing that I would say is that it's not necessarily about even then those details. It's about how Republicans running deal with those details. So do they reject them? Is it a, we're, we've had it with Trump. When do those details come out? In that way, the kind of slow roll of January 6th that we're seeing now of the commission is not a bad thing, but are these details coming out when Republicans are trying to get through primaries? Are they coming out in a general? Do they repudiate them? And I think that a lot of it will be the, the, the measure of how impactful or not those details are depends a lot on, on the timing and then Republicans running for office, their reaction. I think that's totally right. The last thing you said just reminds me uh, of the pro-Yunkin rally that happened right before the election that Donald Trump called into, which Yunkin didn't actually attend, but where they pledged allegiance to the flag, to a flag that had been flown at the insurrection. And so, Mike, on you know, with what Lucy just said as a backdrop, um, how do you think the mythologization of January 6th is going to play into sort of the Republicans campaign to the base, to mobilize the base. Do you think that's going to proliferate that, that sort of, it, it's going to continue to build this glow around it as a, as a positive thing. And does that potentially inoculate them against whatever does come out of the committee? Does that uh, make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think that we're already starting to see the strategy uh, being driven by Donald Trump himself, who is continuously saying that the insurrection was in November and the protest was January the 6th. Yeah, right. I'm laughing not because it's funny, just because it's still a little bit shocking and jarring that that's what we're hearing. Yeah. And uh, clearly the, working. the base is responding to it. 
Um, and remember, what Lucy is saying is absolutely right. The, the, the history is made on the margins. You've heard me say it before. I'm going to say it again. It's going to be a handful of Republican swing voters in you know suburban counties and suburban precincts that will determine the fate and the direction of this country over the next decade or so. We saw that in Virginia. We saw that in New Jersey. We saw that uh, across the country last week, and we're going to see it again in the midterms. The question is going to be, will they, will they view this as much of a growing threat um, as they did in 2020 when we were successful in moving those precincts away from Donald Trump and to Joe Biden? Um, will, will, they, will they see whatever domestic and international policy challenges facing us as big or more significant as the potential threat of re-empowering this party? That's the fundamental question. And I think part of that is going to be dependent, frankly, on, on witnesses that turn. There is evidence in there. There are emails in there. They're going to find some really damning smoking gun evidence of coordination at the highest levels of government. And at that point, you may start to see some people very close in the inner circle trying to save their own skin and turning on the presidents to save themselves. Is that going to move 90% of the Republican base? No, it's not. Could it move 10% of that swing vote that Lucy identified? Yes, it absolutely can. And that's where I think the, the, the balance of power and the direction of the country is going to is going to is going to lay. Okay. Just before midnight last Friday, President Biden secured an achievement that has eluded recent presidents of both parties after the House passed a bipartisan bill, double exclamation point infrastructure bill that will make major investments in all 50 states, according to the Washington Post. The bill passed 228 to 206 with more than 10 Republicans crossing party lines to vote for the bill. The $1.2 trillion investment in infrastructure includes $550 billion in entirely new investments, including things like money for electric car charging stations and zero emission school buses. There is $110 billion for roads and bridges, $66 billion for railroads, $65 billion for both power infrastructure and broadband, $55 billion for water infrastructure, $39 billion for public transit. And then lots of numbers with billions next to them for airports, pollution remediation, ports, electric vehicles, road safety. The rest of the $1.2 trillion includes the funding that's normally allotted each year for highways and other projects. And the bulk of the funding for the bill comes from repurposing unspent COVID relief money and tightening enforcement on reporting gains from cryptocurrency investments. Mike, this comes uh, a week too late to help with the Virginia and New Jersey election. If you are of the mind that this would have changed any minds in the Virginia and New Jersey elections, which was, you know, a lot of pontificating on cable news, but I don't frankly buy it. Uh, but how should we expect this bill to be shaping public opinion on Biden? Uh, it won't. And it, it wasn't going to have any impact uh, during the election. Sorry, folks. Um, look, people, infrastructure, the last time an infrastructure package of this size was passed was basically the Eisenhower, um, you know, administration building the interstate highway infrastructure. Before that, it was probably Lincoln building the Continental Railroad, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a reason why this stuff doesn't get done. It's gazillions of dollars and there's very little political upside and benefit because it takes so long for people to realize what is actually happening. And in four or five, eight years, people aren't going to be going, oh, that's the Joe Biden project that they were talking about, you know, uh, 
half a decade ago. Like that, that there's no immediate payoff. It's a long-term investment. It's a long-term and, we, investment. And, and I literally just had a conversation with Carly Fiorina about this last week mm-hmm. uh, and how sort of the system is sort of set up to incentivize very short-term gains, flash in the pan issues, but disincentivizes long-term investment. And that's, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because this is a very consequential package. This yeah. is going to do really good things for the country, regardless of your ideology. Reagan tried to do it. George W. Bush tried to do it. Clinton tried to do it. Obama tried to do it. It finally got done. Um, in, in many ways, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate that so much political capital was spent on something that Joe Biden's going to be able to take very, very little credit for and be given very little credit for in the mind of public opinion, but it needed to get done. And that capital, that political capital needed to be spent. But in terms of how it's going to actually impact voter behavior, it's not. Yeah, I totally agree. Lucy, in the Senate, this bill passed 69-13 with Republican support, uh, but only 13 Republicans in the House voted for the package. Uh, They were lambasted by Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, Greene called them traitors and tweeted their names and phone numbers. Uh, At least one of them received a death threat. Um, But then we also saw all four members of the squad vote against it as well. Um, And I wonder what you make of both of those phenomenon? Well, let me start with the squad because I think that they overplayed their hand here. I think that progressives had really gotten themselves into a pretty strong bargaining position. And um, I think people like Congresswoman Jayapal are still are still trying to hold that position. Um, you know, that was all about the fight over the timing of the passage of BIF, the bipartisan infrastructure deal, and then the reconciliation, the the spending bill that they say they'll take up in the middle of November. So I think that maybe a month ago, uh, Democrats were in a really strong position because the Republicans were not participating really at all in the House. So progressives were able to extract a lot of power. Um, and, And that also, that newfound power for the progressives, I think that someone like Jai Paul knows when to pull back and when to get on the team so that you can say, we were part of this, which is something that she's been doing. Joe Biden called her mother in India and they celebrated about the passage of the bill and a lot of stuff like that. But she's she's out there saying, like, I'm in the mix. The Progressive Caucus is in the mix. I think the squad overplayed their hand here. They, they just did. Now, as for the 13 Republicans who voted in favor of BIF, one of the things that really surprised me is that when I looked at the headline on when I woke up on Saturday morning and saw that infrastructure had passed, I thought, I bet these are the impeachment, the pro-impeachment Republicans. And they're actually not. There's hmm. a little bit of overlap, but of those 13, only four of them are, you know, the same group. It's like Adam Kinzinger, Gonzalez, Upton, uh, Maliotakis. So uh, like, well, yeah. Uh, so so that was really interesting. I think it shows that there is a little bit of interest in getting some stuff done. And Don Bacon, who's a congressman from Nebraska, said something that I heard on Saturday that I thought was really interesting, which was, it was like the most honest thing I've heard a politician say in a million years. He basically said, I helped draft this bill. And so when it came time to vote on it, I could vote against it and help myself short term in the primary. But then I would be punished in the general because this is a thing that Nebraskans support. Mm -hmm. So do I think that we should all be throwing up our hands and sort of singing kumbaya that the the dark days of Trump are over? 
No, absolutely not. But the passage of the infrastructure bill does suggest a little bit like we could get back to having mm. a functioning government mm. in a way. And I mean, we never really got any major bipartisan legislation passed under Trump. So we'll see what happens. I think those 13 Republicans are going to be fine. The sign of that, I think, is, as you say, things like the fact that there is actually not a serious challenge being mounted against them. That doesn't serve Kevin McCarthy. True. But it's, it's, uh, can, can I say, can I say one do. quick thing? Yeah. I, uh, great observations by Lucy. There is one other thing I want to add, and that is this. There are very few moments, especially in the last decade or so, where you can say this was truly a masterpiece in legislating. But just mm. so everybody understands what happened here with this vote, yeah. basically, the speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who, who, who did a phenomenal job here, went to Jayapal and basically said, I need you to take the grenade for the progressive caucus, knowing that your members can't go up on this vote. If you do that, then what you're going to have is, is it will, it will squash any outrage from the left. And then she went to the Republicans to find the votes to put it over and had to trust Republicans to go up on the floor. And that, so she had to trust both the right and the left and masterfully count those votes to put this deal together on a tightrope. Uh, we don't talk about that enough, no, but don't. this was truly, truly a master legislator getting something done, regardless of how you feel about Nancy Pelosi. She or the doesn't get enough credit for that. that it, it was remarkable. Anybody yeah. who watches this stuff, it's like, holy crap, she's going to deliver this with Republican votes. And as Lucy said, these aren't the 10 you know, people that bailed on Trump. This is a different crew of folks. The back deals to get to that level of trust between a Nancy Pelosi and the, and these 13 members of the Republican caucus while allowing cover from the progressive wings is, is beautiful. That's it the way legislative gets done. It's actually really, really elegant. And yeah. she, and nobody's singing those praises. No, <laughs> but the Democrats <laughs> really should be singing the, those praises. Yeah. Uh, this, the one question, the one question that I have left on sort of, you know, major pieces of legislation is, you know, uh, and I've said this before on the podcast, I wish I, I, I wish Biden had, you know, put all of his political capital into passing something on democracy reform early, mm-hmm. early, early into his administration. And now here we are sort of almost a year in and the one thing that's gotten done is infrastructure, which great. Yes, we need infrastructure. It's going to, to your point, he's not going to be able to take any political credit for this. I mean, it's not going to help um, very much. Um, and I wonder if uh, this is all we get. Is this, you know, is there going to be any political will to pass any kind of meaningful structural election reform, campaign finance reform um, in this Congress before Democrats inevitably lose control of both houses? That's going to happen. Yeah, I think, look, if history is a guide, um, we got what we're going to get right. In 2008, Obama puts all of his chits in on the Affordable Care Act. That's what he got. The decision then was between getting comprehensive immigration reform done um, or affordable, the Affordable Care Act. He decided to go with health care. There spent all his political capital there. There was no way he was going to do anything of significance after that. Loses big in the midterms. Donald Trump in 2016, 2017 faces the same dilemma. He gets the salt you know, package done, gets the tax cuts done, gets the finance package done, expends an extraordinary amount of political capital, gets nothing else done. Um, now that you've got the Democrats back in power with both houses of, of, of the legislature and the executive branch with these thin margins, mm-hmm. 
you get you got one. You got one big thing. You got thing. one big thing. And they, that was the political calculation is what can we get done? Yeah. Because it's a very good chance this is all we get done. And the chances, again, of Republicans taking over in the midterms is quite significant. Yeah. And if that happens, then nothing else is going to get done for, you know, depending on the outcome of the 2024 presidential campaign. Yeah. Lucy, do you think they get Build Back Better after this? Because like, I wish they would move on to democracy, like, but I think it's going to be build back better if it's anything. And do you think they pass something? Well, they have to pass something because they have to keep the government operating Okay, <laughs> because fair. we're up against, we're up against that early December deadline. So they will pass something, what they will pass TBD. I think that we heard Jayapal say, well, I have a commitment from Joe Biden and, and Biden in his press conference on Saturday was doing a super good job of trying to kind of thread the needle in such a way that he was connecting Build Back Better with Biff, as in, we're going to come back in a couple of weeks and pass part two. Part two. Um, <laughs> really talking about a blue-collar blueprint. He referenced sort of the idea that has been put forth by Joe Manchin, that this is a center-right country. He really took that on. Um, he talked about the need to ease inflationary pressures. He said all the right things. And if they can keep that drum beat up, I think they will be more successful in getting something passed. They also have a smaller hurdle to get through because of this being done by reconciliation. What they manage to get in and what the parliamentarian it's believes can be There's, in that bill is, yeah. is a different question. And that's that's a a moving target that's changing every day. But I agree that the the ship has probably sailed on democracy reform because that is a case. You have to make that case as this is urgent. Yeah. We're in crisis. Yep. This is horrible. So if it's so horrible, why have we waited almost a year? So as, as the time goes on, it's been uh, 10 months since the insurrection. How big of a crisis is there? We just had an election last week. It seemed fine. There wasn't any fraud. No one serious is saying there's fraud. So all of the momentum that they would have had for an, an early January vote has died on the vine. I think you're absolutely right about that, Ron. Okay, let's talk about the economy. The White House has been struggling to sell its economic message to the public despite a white-hot labor market. Employment has risen by more than 5 million since January. A record high number of Americans say now is a good time to find a quality job, 74% of respondents in a Gallup poll since 2001. America added over 530,000 new jobs in October, beating out expectations, and the unemployment rate fell to 4.6%, which is a new pandemic low and better than expectations. Wages were up nearly 0.5% for the month and up about 5% from a year ago. And this comes as the consumer price index surged 6.2% from a year ago in October, which marks the highest official rate of inflation in 30 years. It also outpaced the Dow Jones estimate of 5.9%. And one of the big drivers of this is the increase in fuel oil prices, which have increased by 59% over the last year as COVID restrictions have been lifted and OPEC has lowered oil production. Um, I also will note that this official rate of inflation, uh, which is even higher than expectations, also, is uh, there's pretty broad consensus among economists that it understates the actual rate of inflation. Uh, although 
it is still a matter of debate how understated the actual the, the official rate of inflation is. So basically, everybody agrees that inflation is a hell of a lot higher than that, but they don't know how much, and they won't. You know, there's no consensus on exactly how overstated it is. Um, Mike, it looks like. Uh, inflation is going to be the driving force for midterm voting, uh, right? It just seems to be trending in that direction. Republicans are going to say the price of gas has increased, the price of milk has increased, and that's why you should vote for us. And Democrats are going to try to explain how and why inflation is complicated. And we've seen that show before, and we know how it ends. They're going to be explaining, which means they're going to be losing. And Republicans, I had this conversation with Steve Israel uh, a couple of weeks ago. They are going to be really good at giving voice to what people are feeling. And what people are feeling is pressure, is price pressure on the things that they buy every day. Um, so how are you thinking about this? If you're an incumbent Democrat running for re-election next year, uh, what is your best way to message this to voters? Well, look, it puts the Democrats in a very precarious place because, as we say in the business, if you're explaining, you're losing. And the Democrats are going to have to start explaining some of this stuff. And whether they're talking about the consumer price index or the real price of inflation, or whether they're trying to explain supply chain problems <laughs> that have created supply, you know, uh, you know, supply and demand issues, or or housing policy and why housing prices are skyrocketing. I mean, good luck with that, right? All the Republicans are going to do, and I, I saw this on the way down, uh, driving down here, stopping to get gas. There's a little Joe Biden sticker saying, "I did that," with his finger pointing yeah. to to the price on the, um, the gas pump. On the gas pump, I think they're popping up all over the country. They are. And so this this tactic, of strategy, is basically that is 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 it's a very real pocketbook issue that Americans are facing on a daily basis when they're going to the grocery store at the end of the month when they're paying rent and weekly when they're getting gas. Uh, it is very expensive. And so a tight labor market, while beneficial for workers, means a hell of a lot less when it, you still can't afford um to put food on the table and pay the rent and and gas up the car. Yeah. Those and 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 regardless of the issues, it's one of the funny things about the economy is there's a very direct correlation between incumbency re-election and how the economy is doing. It's just the way people are mentally feeling about where they're at. And when people do not feel good about it, they're going to blame whoever is in power. That's just the the way that it works. And sometimes it's of great benefit and sometimes it comes at great consequence. But that the mood of the electorate, as we call it, is largely driven as a function of the economy. And we have not been in an inflationary cycle since the mid-1970s that did not play well for Jimmy Carter <laughs> at all. It did not look good for the Democrats at all. It was a generational problem where people believed that the Democrats could not be trusted on the economy. And, you know, while economists are predicting a pretty strong increase in inflation, and we've got these supply chain problems that are going to head into the midterms, this is not going to be resolved by November 2022. There are estimates that it could be corrected before the president's um, re-election efforts or whoever the Democrat nominee is going to yeah. be in 2024. So we may have a very different economic climate in 2024 than we do heading into the 2022 midterms. Lucy, what do you make of a lot of the the chatter on cable news and sort of the rhetoric around inflation? Um, because I think that's going to, you know, okay, we, we, know, we know inflation is very high, higher than it's been in a very long time, and it's probably even higher than that measure. Um, but what matters just as much, if not more, is what people think it's going to be. 
And, you know, uh, I saw I saw a survey uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, that basically showed, I think it was somewhere near 80% or north of 80% of respondents believed that the prices were going to continue to rise. That's a huge number. Uh, they, then, you know, in some of the coverage I've seen on cable news, the message seems to have shifted from inflation's not really happening to, okay, inflation's happening, but it's not that much to, uh, okay, actually it's, it is going up, uh, to now like MSNBC actually had that tweet that they got lambasted for that said, you know, in this is why, here's why inflation's a good thing. <laughs> so it just <laughs> seems to be, um, they're trying to get ahead of a message that is not good for them. And I wonder what you make of how, first of all, have you seen all that rhetoric, what you make of it and how, how the way inflation is being talked about on cable news and elsewhere in the media is going to shape perceptions and ultimately, you know, voting behavior? Well, I think that first of all, what we're really talking about here is that we have avoided having a, a tougher conversation, which is what the relationship between ongoing deficit spending, which every party is in favor of when they are in power mm-hmm. um, and inflation. And John Arnold, who's a prominent Democrat, Democratic donor, uh, titan of, of industry, wrote something this week saying we have to have that conversation. Essentially, uh, this is a thing that when you get outside of the layers of cable news and the chattering class and Twitter, you really see that serious people are saying that this is a serious issue. But I also think that in a way, yes, MSNBC has some coverage about why inflation is okay. But in a way, I think that the media is making people feel worse about the economy. In contrast to MSNBC, CNN had a report last week about a family of 11, and it turns out they're basically all almost grown adults, who buys 12 gallons of milk a week. And they said, and it, it really, really hurts our our wallet because the the a gallon of milk has gone up from a dollar ninety nine a gallon to two seventy nine, and CNN put this out there and was promoting it. And so that's, I mean, that's a massive increase if you believe that. That's eighty cents on on the previous price of of under two dollars. That's a that's a forty percent increase in in the price of milk. But it wasn't true because a gallon of milk has not been $1.99 in most places in ages. And so perception is reality in politics. And I think that unfortunately, the conversation around the economy is misleading us into thinking things are worse than they are. And I also think that the other aspect of this that we have not dealt with before is just how unusual this economy is because of forces like the pandemic and the ongoing uncertainty about the pandemic. And so when I look at election results from last week, it's easy to say, well, that's because people are worried about the economy. No, it's not. We are in a very, very weird time. And we have to use a different yardstick for thinking about how things are going than, than we would in a normal moment where we're not in a global pandemic. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And just as a bit of trivia for listeners who are wondering, well, why is the official rate of inflation sort of lower than probably the actual rate of inflation or you know the one published by BLS? It has to do with the way it's measured, which is a very, very controversial uh, uh, topic actually among economists, but it, it has to do with the... Um, 
the, uh, the idea that, you know, over time you used to measure inflation with the fixed cost of a basket of goods, uh, uh, the cost of a, of a fixed basket of goods over long periods of time. But what happened in uh, 1980 or so was that uh, the government basically made it easier to make substitutions in that basket of goods that um, that would sort of impact the, the rate of inflation and sort of swap those things out more frequently which would essentially impact the the rate, and so that's 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 why it's very very controversial. And uh, but but the consensus is that it's you know higher higher than it actually is reported. Uh, but Lucy, to your point, Paul Krugman made a similar point in a in a column this week that there's a serious concern about inflation, uh, but that people's opinions about their own financial situation is still quite high, and it's as high as it was in uh, 2019. But there was a major shift in consumer sentiment on party lines in November 2020. Republicans went from very high opinions on the economy to very low opinions, and Democrats went in the opposite direction. So this sort of speaks to your point. Uh, I mean, how how should we be thinking about the partisan split in 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 sort of our views about the economy? Well, we should be thinking about something else that we've talked about on this podcast before, which is that it is hard to rely on traditional traditional tools of measuring how people feel when we are not all consuming the same content and we don't have a common set of facts. So, in in this case people are siloed, not only in their communities, but really in the content that they consume. And so one side is being fed a rah-rah, this is all great. And the other side is being fed a, we're in panic. And it's probably somewhere in between. Yeah. Okay. uh, Before we leave this topic, I want to talk about one other thing. After Miami Mayor Francis Suarez tweeted he was going to receive a paycheck in Bitcoin, New York City Mayor-elect Eric Adams announced that he's going to take his first three paychecks in Bitcoin. And Adams told CNN that he wants to make sure that New York is the, quote, center of innovation, no matter what that innovation is, end quote. He told CNN that he wants New York City schools to look into teaching about crypto and that his administration is going to look into whether they'll encourage businesses to accept cryptocurrencies. So I have a lot of opinions about this topic in general. Um, and and I think it's really misleading to people. And we'll, we'll do this on the podcast. I promise I'm working on it. We're going to do a whole series here. But like, there's a massive uh, uh, problem in the way we're talking about cryptocurrencies in general and, and sort of a lot of misinformation out there. But I put cryptocurrencies in one uh, sort of uh, category and a Bitcoin in, in a completely different category. Um, Setting that conversation aside, how are you both thinking about the potential embrace of cryptocurrencies in New York and also this sort of a rivalry between um, New York and Miami? And also this idea that we should be teaching cryptocurrencies in schools when we we don't even teach basic household <laughs> finance in high schools, which, you know, I think that is one of the like most like, I don't know juiciest pieces of lowest hanging fruit that we could possibly uh, get to, to sort of improve the economic lives of so many Americans. We, can, we don't even teach them how to balance a checkbook. We don't teach them about credit the scores. risks of credit, <laughs> credit cards or predatory lending or credit scores or anything like this. Um, and I, I think we're doing such a, a terrible disservice to students who are about to enter the real world and they have no idea how the financial system works. So sorry to go on that tear. Um, Lucy, why don't you take this one first? 
<laughs> well, I'm glad you did. And I'm glad you brought it up because I actually think of you as the expert in in all things crypto. But if we're going to talk financial literacy, I think, yeah, that would be a great... that I mean, based on the arguments that some folks are making about what is and isn't infrastructure and and uh, human infrastructure, proficiency in, in, in those kinds of topics are pretty, pretty core. And we put such an overemphasis on preparing kids for college, but there are a lot of other ways that we could be preparing people, some of whom may end up going to college and some who don't, to make them better citizens. I mean, more broadly, civic education. So I won't, I won't digress, but yeah, I think that bring on the, the curriculum about crypto and bring on some other stuff in, in, <laughs> at the same time. Totally agree. Mike, no matter how you look at this, there's a couple of things that I, I think are holding true that are telling us that significant change is coming. The first is there is a movement towards Bitcoin specifically and, and other cryptocurrencies um, generally that I, I think it's undeniable are a result of a lack of confidence in other currencies, specifically the dollar. Uh, and in, when inflation begins to become a primary concern amongst consumers, what it really re, what it really is a mark of is a loss of confidence in the full faith and credit of the United States. And let's be clear about something: money is money, and it has value because we believe that it does. That's really the only reason <laughs> why. Okay. Correct. And so, when there is a movement towards a different currency. It's a reflection of where that confidence remains. And when you have not only, you know, kind of tech entrepreneurs and, and opinion leaders moving in the millions of dollars towards, towards Bitcoin, but increasingly um, retailers or, 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 you know, the PayPal's of the world, the Venmo's of the world, um, you, we are seeing a shift in the economy. And it's going to be gradual until it's not. Um, once large retailers start allowing for Bitcoin, um, you know, transactions, I think we're going to see a pretty seismic shift in the way, um, our, frankly, the way our, our, our society operates. But, but the, the main thing to remember, whether or not you understand the nuances of what is happening in this market and in this new, new medium of exchange, it is ultimately underlined by a lack of confidence in the current currency markets. And that consumer confidence is, is the economy. Everything else is a metric to gauge what consumer confidence is. And when you're seeing a flight from the dollar and a flight from other national currencies to a new form of exchange in a very significant way, it's a, it's a red light that you need to be paying attention to. I am so satisfied with that. Uh, description and explanation because it's what I've been saying <laughs> okay. off the podcast for months and okay. months now. We haven't actually had a thorough conversation about it, but that is that is I think the the most the this the most elegant way to put it. Right? Well, thank you. Okay. No, no, it's 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 a fantastic. And also, I'm going to get a cup you. of coffee for that, which, which you can pay for in Bitcoin. By <laughs> which the way, you can pay for in Bitcoin. <laughs> but uh, but but the reason it's so true. The reason you know, money is what we say it's money is worth what we say it's worth. Right. Is, you know, this is, this has been true ever since we went off the gold standard, right. In 1970, right. what was it? Three, Three. 1973 went off the gold standard. Suddenly dollars, not, you can't cash it and get gold for it, which gold was, you know, obviously the, uh, the, 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 some of the hardest money, uh, that there, that there was in the world, difficult to transport and government went off the, 
um, gold currency and and made it easier to uh, print money to pay for things that it wanted to do. Um, and and I think you're you're right. How, the degree to which inflation is rising is completely debatable by smart people. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what's not debatable is that it is rising and that people are feeling it, and that is only fueling uh, a a demand for alternative financial instruments. And I think, um, and I think, you know, Silicon Valley and uh, tech investors are trying to meet that demand. And some of it is scammy. A lot of it is scammy. Right. Uh, and, and some of it is quite sound and, and some of it is, you know, very interesting, uh, very interesting long-term world changing innovations. Look, I, I kind of came of age. I was, a, I was a, you know, child during the Carter years and those inflationary cycles. And they were very impactful on the way I developed my own political attitudes. They were my first political memories. When a country loses confidence in its currency, it has a rippling effect on how it sees itself in the world. Most of us uh, you know, are younger. Most voters now are frankly younger than those times in that era and don't have any understanding of that. But when a country's confidence is shaken in its own currency, it begins to lose confidence in its place in the world. It loses its confidence in its capacity to solve problems. And it begins this, this, this cascading effect, which can be very dangerous. There are very few countries, it has happened, it does happen, that do, that do you know, come back from very significant inflationary cycles. Now, I'm not saying that's where we're heading. Right. I'm not, let me be right, clear right. on that, okay? Yeah. We have come back from that many times as a country, and we will this time. But what I am trying to say is politically, in the way this is going to play out, mm-hmm. is inflation is not just this abstract concept that you know academics talk about. It has very real impacts at the ballot box and in the halls of power in Washington, D.C. and state, state houses. Yeah. Lucy, what are you thinking about all this? And also, by the way, aren't you just glad I didn't ask you about Facebook this week? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of digital currencies being, anyway. <laughs> you didn't even mention the NYC coin. I know, I know. Well, yeah, that's, go ahead. Tell, tell our listeners about NYC coin. Yeah, so Eric Adams' enthusiasm for crypto um, has has won New York City the honor of being being the next the next uh, location of a city specific coin. So that kind of crypto that crypto bro competition that Miami has been putting up such a strong such a strong uh, fight on. They have some maybe uh, Eric Adams is going to give them a run for their crypto. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I, I have too many thoughts on this to go into right now, but if you dear listeners are following along and are scratching your heads and are sort of, you know, uh, reluctantly, uh, open to more conversation about cryptocurrencies in particular, and if it's the emerging financial, uh, system, which I don't know any other way to put it, but the financial system is changing and it's going to change. Uh, I promise you we're working on some, uh, some episodes that will, um, that will go through this in a lot more detail and, uh, and, and sort of bring you up to speed on why this is so politically significant. Now that we are up to speed on the biggest, a few of the biggest stories of the week, uh, let's talk about what we're watching. Lucy, what do you have for us? Well, I've been following a little bit the presidential elections in Nicaragua, where Daniel Ortega, who is essentially a dictator, um, but previously 
cloaked himself in freedom fighter uh, uniform, won his fourth term. And I mean, I should be doing air quotes because when I say he won his fourth term, he basically jailed uh, and intimidated any political opponents, won the election by 76%. Uh, everyone who who watches global democracy are saying this is a complete farce. But it's part of a larger backslide in Latin America and more globally. And, and I reacquainted myself this week with some of the Freedom House Democracy Index uh, content about how actually we have had negative indicators all over the world now for 15 years and that 75% of the world's population lives in a country that faced their democracy deteriorating last year, which includes the U.S. Um, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit um, biased here because I've been involved in a, a project that Renew Democracy has been, has been rolling out with CNN this week where they give voice to these dissidents from all over the world. You can go look at it. Um, but who explain their own experiences with, with democracy deteriorating before their eyes. And most of them, the way that they're able to be doing their, these videos is that they no longer live in those countries or, you know, because many of their colleagues are jailed or worse. So I think that when we look at our own focus on democracy reforms, this is kind of an evergreen, but but that election in Nicaragua really, really stood out to me as just a sign of of the way that democracy is under threat all over all over the world and how much we have to keep up the drumbeat on things like the January 6th commission, how much we need to reject the idea that we should just move on because it's it's global. It's not a it's a the good news and the bad news is that. This is not a uniquely American phenomenon. It's it's worldwide. Here, here, and well said, Mike. What are you watching? I'm watching the Evergrande issue in China. Evergrande is a basically a real estate investment trust, large Chinese property developers, three hundred billion dollars in real estate assets, is limping along and trying to make um, its uh, interest payments. Uh, having a lot of trouble with it, and it's it's got financial markets all over the globe panicking. Um, there's there's some question as to whether it defaulted yesterday or whether a hundred and eighty million dollar interest only payment was made. But this is the third time in the past thirty days where it has barely made a payment, um, and it's it's teetering on on the verge of default. Now, just to put this kind of in yeah. context, a yeah. three hundred billion dollar uh, default in the, the Chinese real estate market would have calamitous effects worldwide. Just the amount of, of debt that uh, that would be defaulted on would have institutional investors writing off an extremely large sum. And the fact that it's happening in China with the Chinese, I think, is something that we need to be pay, uh, paying a lot of attention to, because that kind of an impact wouldn't just con cause perhaps a global depression, but it could de destabilize some of the geopolitical developments that are happening all yeah. over the world. Yeah. So you're going to hear a lot more about that. Uh, again, the name is Evergrande. It is a Chinese uh, real estate development holding company that is dramatically overextended and is defaulting 
on hundreds of billions of dollars of debt, and it has the capacity to tear down Chinese financial markets and invest in, in institutional investors all over the world. All over the world. Yeah. There had been a lot of chatter about this over the last month or two when yeah. it was sort of on the horizon and there was a question mark at the end of it, what's mm-hmm. going to happen with Evergrande, and now we are starting to see what's going to happen yeah. with Evergrande. Mike, Lucy, before we go to the after party, aka Politicology Plus, which I'm so pumped about, this climate change PR big oil. This is going to be such yeah. a good Okay. Uh, where can people find you on the internet, Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Mike? Best place is at Twitter, uh, at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. And we'll see you next time. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, You can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.